But we've been in the series in the books of First and Second Samuel. This is our 19th week. And today I'm not going to give you any reminder of where we've been in First and Second Samuel. I'm not going to read First Samuel 13, 14 again. I'm not going to give you that whole review of all the stuff that makes the pursuit metaphor work for these chapters. We're just going to jump right on into something that is so important, it transcends the book of Samuel. I mean, what we have today in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a chapter that is definitely embedded in 2 Samuel, embedded in 1 and 2 Samuel. It is important to get this passage in its context, but this passage transcends all other passages in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. This is the passage that you must know in order to get a big picture idea of what the whole text of Scripture is all about. And so rather than giving you review over the book of Samuel, I'm going to give you some review over the entire history of humanity. There are six major covenants that we could talk about. Covenants are the arrangements God has made with His people. Covenants, promises that God has made with His people, and there are six major ones. I'm going to run through some of these old covenants with you. The first one that we come across in Scripture is the covenant God makes with Adam. Adam and Eve, but uh, he verbalizes it mostly to Adam. So you can go ahead and put that up on the screen here just so you can see it. This is God's covenant with Adam comes in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. It's where God says to Adam, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, steward the earth, run the show on the earth. But then God also says to Adam, and avoid the one fruit tree. Avoid the fruit from the one tree. Adam, you're supposed to take care of everything, you're supposed to govern everything, you're supposed to guide everything on this planet. You, as the human race, God makes a promise to the human race, I have given you my image, I have put myself in you, everything that you need, plus my presence is with you. God walked with Adam in the garden, we are told. And so God is there and he's like, Adam, here we go, we're getting everything started, I'm giving you everything that you need, I just want you to avoid the one piece of fruit. Why? Because avoiding that one piece of fruit, on the one hand, biologically, God said it'll kill you. And so, you know, you just generally want to avoid the things that your parents tell you are going to kill you. Trust me on that. They've been down the road a little bit before you, and it's okay for you to just not consume the things that they will tell you will kill you. But on the other hand, that fruit was a symbol of God saying, here's our arrangement. You have complete and total freedom over the entire earth, except I reserve one tree and the fruit from that tree for myself and myself alone. It was a symbolic act where God says, we're entering into a covenant where I give you everything except one thing. Of course, Adam doesn't keep that covenant. Adam and Eve decide they want one more thing and they go after the one more thing. And so years later, God will make another covenant with a man named Noah. And the covenant with Noah was a reiteration of the covenant with Adam, but with some extra things added to it. You see, at the end of the whole flood thing, I know you know the story of Noah and the flood. It's not Jonah and the flood, and it's not Noah and the whale. It's Noah and the flood, and Jonah, and by the way, it was a big fish, the, you know, that thing. But anyway, so Noah, he has this giant flood. The whole world that they know about at the time gets wiped out, and God is going to start fresh with Noah and his family. 
And then at the end of that, the earth begins to dry out, a rainbow shines in the sky, Noah sees it, and God says to Noah, this is my sign, this is the covenant sign that I will never again destroy the earth with a flood. And so the first aspect of this new covenant is God coming to Noah and saying, never again will I destroy the earth with a giant flood. But it is now your job, Noah, to steward the earth, to be fruitful and multiply. And he adds one more thing. He says, and this time I want to emphasize, I want you to care for your fellow men. He says, because I have made all humanity in my image, I want you to consider that other people are in my image too. And so I want you to care for your fellow man. Now, here's the amazing thing with Adam. Adam, before he ate from the tree, he could have no idea the extent of this covenant. He had no idea what freedom over the entire earth would mean. He had no idea what stewardship of the earth would mean. He had no idea how big the earth was, and he also had no idea the consequences that would come from eating that one fruit from that one tree. He had no idea about the extent of of the covenant, all he could do was receive it and trust it and live under it. And the same thing goes with Noah. Noah, when he gets this covenant from God, he has no idea. He has no idea how expansive the world is. He has no idea how far the flood went. He has no idea any of these things. And he has no idea what it means for him to care for his fellow men. He has no idea what it means for him to steward and care for the earth. And he has no idea of the implications if they begin to get any of this stuff wrong. All he can do is receive the covenant, trust it, and live under it. Another covenant shows up years later. This covenant comes to a man named Abraham. And this is the first time we begin to get a sense of like really how long ago things were. Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Jesus. And so Abraham is now this dude, and in the Bible he actually starts out with his name as Abram. But he starts out and God one day just shows up with him, shows up to him and says, Hey, Abram, we're going to do some things here. One, I'm going to be your God. And Abraham's like, okay, okay where, when did this start? You know? But God just shows up. He says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my guy. And the covenant begins with God saying, we're going to have a relationship with each other. And God says, hey, guess what? I'm just going to bless you. I'm going to bless you with a family. I'm going to bless you with land. I'm going to bless you. You're going to become a great nation. I'm going to give you so much blessing. It's going to pour out on other people, and you're going to be a blessing to other people. God says to Abraham, guess what? I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my guy. I'm going to pour so much blessing on you that it spills out to the world around you. And Abraham's like, nice to meet you, God. (laughs) All of a sudden, out of the middle of nowhere, the promise shows up. And Abraham, listen, he had no idea the extent of this. In fact, we know that a few years later, he's going to be like, okay, well, God promised me children. I need to have a child, so uh, let me sleep with a slave woman, and I'll have a kid with her, because his wife hadn't given him any kids, and he was way old. And so Abraham's like, well, I'll just make it up myself. I'll just do it. And God shows up again. He says, no, 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 Abraham, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my guy. I'm going to bless you the way I want to bless you. I'm going to do these things for you. I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to give you child. I'm going to give you, you, 
you're going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. All these things. And God continues to say, no, Abraham, stop trying so hard. I'm the God who's made this covenant with you. In fact, there's this scene where God makes his covenant with Abraham. It's one of the most amazing scenes in scripture where God says, Abraham, what I want you to do is I want you to take these animals. He gives them a whole bunch of animal names. And take these animals and slice them in half and put one half on one side, one half on the other side. And the ancient practice was that when you made a covenant with someone, you would always make a covenant with someone who was better than you because you'd never make a covenant with someone who was worse than you. You wouldn't want to do that. But you'd make a covenant with someone who was better than you. You would take animals, expensive animals. You would cut them in half. You'd put one animal, like the head over here, the body over here. And then the two of you who are making the covenant would walk through the middle of the cut up animals together. Because walking through the middle is you saying to this dude, this is what I'm going to do to you if you break the covenant. And the other guy saying to you, this is what I'm going to do to you if you break the covenant. You know, if you break this covenant, I'm just going to cut you in half and then we'll be done. Because listen, that's, the, that's what it was. It was kind of like the way they did the blood pact or something. It wasn't your blood. It was these animals lying dead. But the amazing thing is after Abraham does all this animal cutting up thing and he sets up the thing for him and God to walk through together to make this covenant. Before Adam starts walk, before Abraham starts walking through this, the Spirit of God somehow shows up in flame and passes solitarily right down the middle of the aisle. As if to say, Abraham, I told you, I'm making a covenant with you that doesn't involve you. I'm making a covenant to you. I'm going to make you a covenant that just blesses you. And Abraham had no idea the significance of this. He had no idea what it would mean. He had no idea what it would mean to bless the entire world from his family. All he could do was receive it and trust it and live under it. Years later, Abraham's descendants will be numerous and they'll be living in Egypt and they will have been enslaved. And God will reach out to another man named Moses and he will say, it's time for me to renew my covenant with my people. Moses, I want you to get the people, do these miraculous things that I'm going to empower you to do. And then you're going to get these people out of Egypt. You're going to bring them to this mountain where I'm meeting with you now, Moses. And there at this mountain, we are going to set up a new kingdom. And at the mountain, at Mount Sinai, God sets up a new covenant covenant kingdom with his people. He says, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to give you my rules for what it means to be in relationship with me. And those rules include things like how to worship me and, and how to experience me in, in this, this, this country that is going to be formed. Uh, what kind of tent, tabernacle, temple thing I'm going to have. We're going to create up the rules for relationship with God and the rules for relationship with others and the rules for the chain of blessing from God through me to others. That's what the law is really all about. And so Moses is there on the mountain. He gets this law and he brings this covenant law back to the people. And yeah, it begins with 10 commandments that you're familiar with. But if you look at the 10 commandments, they're just a summary of everything else he gives us. A summary that says this is how we relate to God. This is how we relate to others. And this is how we continue the chain of blessings from God through me to others. Now listen, Moses and the people of Moses had no idea the significance of this. 
They had no idea what it would mean to eventually be in the promised land. They had no idea what it would eventually mean to be the people who bring blessing to the entire world. They had no idea and they couldn't have understood it. All they could do was receive it and trust it and live under it. And now we come to our covenant we're going to look at today. The covenant with David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is covenant number 5, and I'm going to take you to that covenant now because this is where you see all over again a God who for whatever reason, inexplicable to us, will show up in our lives and say, I'm going to bless you, and there's nothing you have to do in return. Chapter 7 verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. How did David get rest from all his enemies around him? The Lord had given him rest. The Lord had given him rest. He said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Now, I'm going to pause there for just a moment because this is so interesting. Remember, when Samuel gave Saul the kingship originally, Samuel anointed Saul and he said, Saul, the Holy Spirit of God is going to come on you and then you're going to walk past this town that has a Philistine garrison in that and when you walk past that town, you're supposed to do whatever your hand finds to do because God is with you. And the implication was exactly the same as the implication for ancient Samson or ancient Joshua, that the implication was Saul was supposed to take out those Philistines because God was with him. And Samuel said, do whatever your hand finds to do. In other words, God says, I'm with you so much that you can just do what makes sense to you because I'm with you that much. You can hear my whisperings into your heart whether you know it or not. I'm with you that much. And then later, God says, I'm taking my spirit away from Saul, but then he puts his spirit on David. And now Nathan looks at David and he says, ha ha, you want to build God a temple? Yeah, do whatever your hand finds to do because God is with you. Now, I'm pausing there just because I want to highlight something for us. There are a lot of times in your life and in my life where I just wallow around wondering what God wants me to do. You know, I'll just, I'll just pray and I'll be like, God, show me the light. Give me a sign. Point the direction. Help me understand what to do. And I'm waiting around for God to give me some prophetic word. But here's an example of David who got a good idea, talked to a prophet, and the prophetic word he got as his answer was, do whatever you want because God is with you. Now, I'm not saying that God is always going to ask you to do whatever you want because I'm also saying that God isn't always going to be with you in a way that you are paying attention to. Nathan, at this point in time, thinks that God is with David at that level, and so he's like, David, go ahead and do what you want to do. But as we'll learn in this case, Nathan was actually wrong. Nathan spoke a little too soon, because that night in a dream, God tells Nathan, hang on a second, you jumped the gun a little bit on that, do whatever your hand finds to do thing. I'm going to give you a little bit more guidance for David. Here it is. Pick it up in verse 4. 
In verse 4, but that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? This is, this is really interesting. God has been a mobile God for the entire time he's been working with the people of Israel. He's been moving around in a tent. And even though I would get irritated moving around in a tent all the time while other people are settling down, God is like, no, 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 I'm not in this for me. I'm okay moving around in a tent. Did I ever ask anyone to build me a house? Keep reading. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. This is unbelievable. David is trying to be noble. He's like, here I am living in my palace, and God is living in a tent. That doesn't seem right. I'm living in a palace. God is in a tent. That doesn't make sense to me. Nathan, I'm going to build God a temple. And Nathan's like, sounds like a great idea. Do it. And then God shows up. The prophet thinks it's a good idea. David thinks it's a good idea. But God shows up and says, hang on a second here. Since when did I need a house? I like moving around with you people. I like being with you wherever you go. David, you've been in Ziklag. I was there with you. David, you were in the the cave in Adullam. I was there with you. David, you were in Hebron. I was there with you. David, you were even the Philistines area. I was there with you too. Since when did I need a house? Tell you what. This is what God says. Tell you what. I'm going to give Israel a home. I'm going to spend my energies on getting Israel home. And David, guess what? I'm going to make you a house. Here's the thing. Write this down if you're taking notes. God never asked anyone for a house. But he promised David a house. This is so completely backwards compared to the way other gods work. Uh, I think I've told you this story once before, but... When I was in college, I was in a philosophy class, an ethics class, philosophy of religion, stuff like that, ethics and stuff. And in that class, one of the field trips we took was a field trip to a local Hindu temple. 
And because my, I mean, I went to a Christian college, but they wanted to expose us to some of the thoughts that other people have. And so we went to this Hindu temple. And there I was fascinated in the middle of this Hindu temple, there is this, I mean, we had to do all the thing where you take off your shoes and you wash your feet and stuff. And then you come into this special little room where we're all standing around. And uh, what we were looking at was in the middle of this room, just a piece of rock in the shape of a phallus. And I'm not going to describe it any more than that. Just a piece of rock in the middle of the room. And we had no idea what we were doing or what we were looking at or why this was happening. I later learned that that was an idol to or of Shiva. Shiva is one of the Hindu gods, one of the key main Hindu gods, the god of war and death and and divisiveness and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, there was this, this idol rock thing in the middle of the room and this priest guy came in and he spent like 20 minutes pouring stuff on top of this rock. He put, he, he rubbed honey all over it. He sprinkled pistachio nuts all over it. He then uh, took some meat and slapped the meat like around it. And he poured some orange juice on it and milk on it. And he rubbed it all in and all this stuff. And I'm standing there. I'm like, what in the world? This guy, this guy is serving a rock. He is doing something for this rock. And all I could think about was the mess this guy was making and how embarrassing it would be when your God fails to show up and eat all the food that you've given him and you have to clean up the mess after everybody has left. I was just thinking about that. And then he finished the whole thing with water because all the other stuff was already kind of losing off. And so he finished it with water and conveniently there was a grate at the bottom for all the stuff to go through. So no, he didn't have to come back later and clean it all off because apparently his God needed a drink at the end of the whole thing. And the whole time I was there, I was like, how much crazy effort is going on here for a piece of rock? And that is what all the other gods in the universe who aren't even real demand of their people. Every god is always like, you serve me. You're the one who builds me a house. You're the one who builds me a statue. You're the one who gives me the food. You're the one who takes care of my stuff. You're the one who follows my rules. You're the one who does all these things so that I can be comfortable, happy, and so that the whole world can know how awesome I am. And God, the real God, Yahweh, is different. He says, no, I made you. I'm in this business for the long haul. What I want is to see you Become everything I've made you to be. David, I don't need a house. My first priority is to get you guys a home. And then, David, I'm going to build you a house. Now, it just is important for us to remember that house is a metaphor in the ancient world for kingdom or dynasty. And so God is not talking about building David a physical house. David's literally in his own palace at this time. God is talking about building David a metaphorical house, a dynasty. And so let's keep reading here, verses 11 through 16. Verse 11 through 16. It says this, The Lord himself, I'll start halfway in verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. 
when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That's an incredible covenant. Up until this point, pretty much all of the covenants did not have any sort of end time mentioned. The covenant to Noah was just, this is what you're going to do. The covenant with Adam was, this is just what you're going to do. The covenant with Moses is, this is what you're just going to do. You know, this is how this relationship is going to go for an indeterminate period of time. Indeterminate is the period of time for all the other covenants. But with the David covenant, it's not an indeterminate period of time. It is a definite period of time. And that period of time is forever. With David, God specifically says, your kingdom's going to last forever. This is just, it's, it's more of the same big idea. Why in the world would a God who made the entire universe, who, who understands the difference between a black hole and a neutron star, this is the God who made the atoms do what the atoms do and understands why it is that quantum mechanics and gravity don't work together in the same theories. This is the God who made human beings so that sometimes our bodies heal themselves and sometimes they don't. And he knows why. This is the God who does all of that stuff behind behind the scenes that we can't even imagine, and he, in all of his glory and power, will say to someone like David, I'm going to build you a house. It's such a tragedy to me that you and I fall into the temptation that God somehow needs our help, that this world is on fire, and God isn't big enough to put it out on his own, and so we have to somehow intervene. It's such a tragedy to me to think that there are people who worship God, but the God that they worship is a God like a rock in a temple who needs people to coddle after him. And the God who comes and speaks to David is a God who says, no, no, hang on. I'm just going to do a bunch of stuff for you. Let me list off for you what God promises to David, just to highlight it. The first thing God promises to David is he's going to raise up David's son. Now, this is interesting because a few years from now, uh, David's son Absalom will try to become the king in a very bad way and end up getting himself killed. We're going to read that in just a few weeks. Absalom is David's son who doesn't become the king, but God will raise up another son, a son who hasn't even been born at this time in the story, a son whose name is Solomon, a son who comes from tragic circumstances, but that's the son who will be raised up. God says, I'm going to raise up a son for you. The second thing God promises to David is that David's son will be the one to build the temple. David isn't going to build the temple. The son will build the temple. The third thing God promises to David is that David's son will have a forever kingdom. It's not David's 
kingdom that's going to be forever necessarily. It's his house, it's his dynasty, it's his line that will be forever. But God says specifically that the son will have a forever kingdom. And then fourth, David's son, according to God, will be loved as God's own son. God says, I will call him my son. David, it is your son, but God says, I'm going to call him my son, and I will never remove my love for him. In fact, this son, God says, if he does anything wrong, if he ever has any sin on him whatsoever, then I'm going to make sure he gets flogged, but I'll never take my love away from him. And so that's the next thing, the next promise. David's son is going to be flogged. He's going to experience flogging of some kind. And then, just to put an icing on the cake, God repeats the main point of the covenant when he says, and David, your dynasty will be forever. And the amazing thing about this covenant promise is that all of these things come, well, not all of them. Uh, Some of these things come true. As I just told you, David is going to have a son named Solomon who becomes king after him. And Solomon's a really influential king. And Solomon will build a temple, and not just any temple, the most glorious temple in the ancient world. It was the number one temple in the ancient world, one of the greatest wonders of the ancient world, built by David's son Solomon, built a fabulous temple. And he established a kingdom, but Solomon eventually dies. And... um, Another weird thing is that Solomon is never punished. Don't get me wrong, Solomon does a lot of bad things. But he's never punished. There's no passage in any text that tells us that Solomon experienced flogging or any kind of punishment. And then, of course, Solomon had a son... And his son, Rehoboam, was not a very good guy. And in fact, the kingdom split under Rehoboam. And so then the whole kingdom divides. And it's only Judah and Benjamin that stick around with the David line of kings. All the other tribes of Israel, they follow another line of kings. And this one line of kings, the David line of kings, they keep going for a little while. But in 527, they, excuse me, 597, uh, the king Jehoiachin gets captured by the king of Babylon, and that's the last king Judah has. Jehoiachin is one of David's descendants. He's been on the throne for a long time. It's been a while. I mean, 400 and, and uh, what, what it was, 479, is that what I said? I got to look it up. It's down here. 400, uh, 500, excuse me, BC. So um, I had it written down here. I'm just not finding it. It's in my notes, 597. I just had to get it detailed because I'm like that. But in 597 BC, 597 BC, this guy Jehoiachin gets carried off and he's the last Davidic king. And that's what makes this covenant weird. Because God was clearly wrong. Or he was lying, right? I mean, there's, there's something about this covenant that God is like, okay, you're going to have a son, he's going to be the king, you're going to have, he's going to build the temple, he's going to be on the throne forever, but the, only the first two things actually happen. None of the other things happen. And eventually the whole kingdom dies. And the picture you get, is, well, what's, what's this all about? Well, David doesn't know any of that stuff. He can't understand, he can't fathom the future. 
He can't fathom what's going to happen. He can't understand the big picture of this covenant. He doesn't know the future history. For David, all he can do is receive it and trust it and live under it. And this is what David says. Verse 17, Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you've brought me this far? And if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you've also spoken about the future of the house of your servant, and this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord, For the sake of your word and according to your will, you've done this great thing and you've made it known to your servant how great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you and there is no God but you as we have heard with our own ears. And and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You've established your people and Israel as your very own forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you've made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say the Lord Almighty is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant saying I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy. And you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. God said to David something outlandish, something unbelievable. David, you're going to have a a descendant on the throne forever. David, your kingdom will be established forever. Listen, that is an unbelievable statement. Long time? Sure. That's happened a lot of times in history. But forever, that's a hard statement to believe. God is just exaggerating or something like that. But David says, I don't know the future. I can't predict the future. I don't know what else is happening in the future. But I know God made a promise. And if God made a promise, I'll receive it. And I'll trust it. And I'll live under it. But as I already said, God's promise seems to have fallen short. We're such an interesting people where when God makes us a promise, we expect it to fail, don't we? Like, God makes us a promise and we're not like David who's just like, oh, this is amazing, it'll be true forever. We're the kind of people who always sort of feel like we have to hedge our bets with God. Who always feel like we have to take matters into our own hands. Who always feel like we have to have our own sort of backup plan also. People who believe God a little bit but don't believe God all the way because His promises are too outlandish. His promises are too big. It's hard for us to accept that they're actually true. Unlike David, we're the kind of people who withhold a portion of our worship because we just don't think we can trust God all that much. And we look at this story and we're like, see, we're right. It didn't hold. 
In 597, Jehoiachin gets carried off. But there's this other thing that happens. I want to read you a couple other verses that come way after David. Hundreds of years after David. Hundreds of years after David is dead. Here are some other words that show up. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 33 says this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Hang on just a second real quick. He says, it won't be like the covenant I made when I was taking them through the desert. Which covenant was that? Is that the Adam covenant, Noah covenant, Abraham covenant? No, it's the Moses covenant. It's not going to be like the Moses covenant where I was leading them through the desert. It's going to be different. And it says this. Let's go on to the next one. He says, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. God says, this isn't going to be like that covenant where Moses brings laws down from the mountain. There's a new covenant that I'm going to embed in your soul. I'm going to put something inside side of you and we're just going to be in relationship with each other. It's going to be me, God, and you, my people, and we're going to be in relationship to each other. And that sounds really interesting. It also sounds kind of soft and it doesn't answer our hunger for the David covenant, but Ezekiel addresses that. In Ezekiel chapter 37, we read this, verse 24, and then we'll skip to 26. It says, my servant David will be king over them. Pause. Ezekiel 37 is written about 20 years after Jehoiachin, maybe longer, 40 years maybe, after Jehoiachin is taken into captivity. Just for reference, David has been dead for 400 years. Just for reference. And this prophet says, David will be king over them. Weird prophecy to make, don't you think? My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. Well, that's right. David was a shepherd boy. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. Keep going. He says, I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them, a temple, among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. God says, okay, hang on a second. It's been 400 years since the last time I talked to you about covenant, and I want to let you know something. I'm not done with that one. That one that I said David was going to be the forever king, that one where I said a descendant of his would be on the throne forever, I'm not done with that covenant. That covenant's still going on, but I'm going to make it new. I'm going to do something new with this new covenant. I'm going to undo some of the stuff from the law in the previous covenant because I'm now just going to make it about us. I'm now just going to make it relationship. There's not going to be a national structure. There's not going to be some sort of governing body that says us this is what a relationship with God looks like. I'm just going to have a relationship with you directly. And yes, there will be a king. Yes, there will be a shepherd. And yes, it's going to be David. I know you don't understand this right now, but I'm going to tell it to you. And Ezekiel, he doesn't know what this means. All he can do is receive it and trust it and live in it. And Jeremiah, he doesn't know what that means. All he can do is receive it and trust it and live in it. But 600 years, 600 years after Ezekiel, a ragtag group of losers will be in a room having a meal. 
And the guy they've been hanging out with for a while, who's sort of the reason they're all leading together, will stand up and give them the last few pieces of the meal. And he'll hand them a piece of bread and a cup, and he'll say these words. This is from Luke chapter 22, beginning verse 19. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Jesus was, in fact, a descendant of David. Jesus did, in fact, refer to himself as a shepherd. And here in this moment, he looks at his disciples and he says, that new covenant thing, (laughs) it's now. I would imagine that those 12 disciples around the room hearing the words new covenant might have thought to themselves, Jeremiah 31. Might have thought to themselves, Ezekiel 37. Might have thought to themselves any of a number of prophecies in the book of Isaiah. Any of the number, maybe they even went all the way back in their mind to 2 Samuel chapter 7. David will rule over them. Your kingdom will reign forever. There will be a temple and all this great stuff. Maybe their mind was going all the way back to that. But either way, I'm sure they were on the edge of the seats of cheering if it just weren't for those two weird phrases where Jesus says, my body broken for you and my blood poured out for you. Once again, The new covenant shows up on the scene. And the new covenant means David's going to sit on the throne. The new covenant means the kingdom is here. The new covenant means, yes, finally all these promises. All of the previous covenants, one through five, all of the previous covenants get wrapped up into this new one. It's a new way of relationship with God. It's a new king over us. And I'm imagining they're all gung-ho except how does David rule forever if David is dead? Well, we get his son. Well, Solomon's dead. Well, we get this descendant, Jesus. But what if Jesus is dead? In less than 24 hours from this meal, Jesus will have the sin of the world placed on him, will experience flogging at the hands of human beings, will suffer and die, And what do you do with a king who's dead? So a couple days later, he shows up again. He's alive again. And his disciples are like, new covenant. Somehow he beat death. Somehow the forever part of this whole thing might actually happen. Somehow this new covenant thing could actually happen. And so these guys come up to Jesus and they're like, oh my goodness, I cannot imagine, I cannot believe this new covenant and all of the others can be fulfilled in Jesus because he's alive. He's a forever king who could be a forever king. And so if you're taking notes, write it down, the new covenant, and all the others are fulfilled in Jesus. He is the heir of David. He is the good shepherd. He is, in fact, the new temple, the new dynasty. He says, my body, my body, my blood, my sacrifice. Listen, there is no way any of them could understand any of that stuff. All they could do was receive it and trust it and live in it. 
That's why three days later, (laughs) Jesus is alive. And the first thought on their mind is what we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Take a look at what these guys say to Jesus after he's come back to life. We'll put it up here. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time? Is this the time that we're going to finally get this whole covenant thing fulfilled? And Jesus says, I'm not going to answer that question right now. Um, well, you'll find that answer later. Uh, what I'm going to tell you now is I'm going to give you the last little piece of this new covenant. And the last little piece of this new covenant is verse 8, where Jesus says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, that whole new covenant kingdom thing. Even now, you misunderstand it. The promise is the forever king. The promise is the presence of God written on your hearts, the spirit himself embedded in your life, giving you power to be my witnesses, blessing the whole world, the blessing from God to you, to others. Listen, we can't understand it. We can't fully grasp it. All we can do is receive it and trust it and live it. And that is what we do when we come to communion. It's in communion where we embrace this new covenant. It's in communion where we embrace the uncertainty of covenants that never get fulfilled the way we want them to be fulfilled. It's when we come to communion that we embrace this question mark living with God that says, God, I don't know the future. I don't know the details. All I know is that you don't need me, but you love me. And so I'll receive it and I'll trust it and I'll live in it. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.